Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Alan Ferguson and Kevin Drewley. This is our May 2023 episode, number 39 all time. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We know many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession. We want to hear about it for our My Story feature in the magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth@nsc.org. You can view past My Story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Kevin will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on workplace violence prevention, including how to identify and manage the risks. For our monthly five questions with interview, we'll be joined by David Hornung from Cal OSHA to talk about heat illness awareness as the summer months approach. And the three of us will also share lessons that we learned this month in our aptly named What Did We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Then away we go. Each month here on The Safe Side, we examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In our May issue, Kevin writes about workplace violence prevention. Among the topics Kevin addresses in the story are warning signs, the importance of speaking up, and the use of technology to assist in violence prevention. Kevin, will you please take us deeper into your story? Absolutely, Alan, and thank you for the introduction. It truly is appropriate. It's, you know, not so much a catch-all, but as we'll discuss today and, and as folks will read, there's a lot to this. So just trying to provide a little bit of an overview to, to what, you know, they should be aware of. Um, just to get started, I know regardless of subject matter, we, we often give a, a caveat on the podcast about the prevalence of hybrid workplaces and various employers gradually bringing employees back to offices. But the fact remains that incidents of workplace violence didn't exactly disappear at the onset of the pandemic. And that's according to the experts who spoke to us for the story. One of them is Mike Britt, who's co-owner of the Virginia-based Sentinel Security Group. And that organization actually presented at the 2021 NSC Safety Congress Next Expo in Orlando. And he gives an especially, in my opinion, harrowing anecdote about today's workplace violence climate. It was a year ago, and as you're listening to this, in May 2022, that Mike was delivering a workplace violence training session when he and attendees learned of the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. The site of that training was about an hour's drive from the school, Mike said. In the story, Mike also tells readers that, quote, the old methodology of, oh, it could never happen here, that has to go out the window, because it can. And stemming from that, another source, Lev Paberski, who's Senior Director of Safety and Security at Pepsi, and also Chair of NSC's Community Safety Division, says that workplace violence is, quote, never out of the blue. With that, acts of workplace violence transcend time and industry, the, the numbers tell us. According to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2020, 392 workplace homicides and more than 37,000 non-fatal injuries related to intentional harm from another person were recorded. Sales, transportation, and material moving were the leading worker groups in the homicide category. The industries that observed non-fatal assaults most commonly were, in order, the service industry, healthcare, and education. 
So, Kevin, what should employers and workers know about the warning signs of workplace violence? Experts, Alan, say that in most cases, warning signs surface before an act of workplace violence occurs. So being aware of what those signs are and how to handle them really can go a long way toward preventing violence before it starts. We'll get to those warning signs momentarily, but first just want to reiterate some things that that our experts said were important to recognize. And that's that these acts, again, seldom are out of the blue, backtracking to, to Lev's quote that we shared a moment ago. So individuals who commit violent acts or demonstrate hostility, they may have experienced what experts call a quote unquote crisis point in the weeks or months before the event. So maybe that motive is the end of a relationship, maybe the loss of a job, or perhaps it's a work-related grievance such as a perceived unfair labor practice against them or unequal treatment against them. Britt and Poberski then, with that in mind, offered multiple behaviors that potentially could be construed as warning signs of violence as they stem again from these crisis points. And some of those are increased drug or alcohol use, financial difficulties, excessive unexpected absences, unexplained outbursts of hostile behavior, quickly becoming agitated or upset with management, coworkers, or supervisors, leaving work unexpectedly, exhibiting intense anger, verbalizing negative actions such as making if I could statements or threats, suicidal threats, and destruction of property. Overall, as you're, as you're hearing and maybe envisioning, these behaviors are showing a shift in attitude, performance, and output. And I know there was input from the experts just that maybe it's a worker who might have been troubled in the past showing more of that or someone who maybe was your exemplary worker or, or colleague who's suddenly, oh, wow, he or she is acting this way. And, you know, it's especially alarming given, given their, their past. So, Kevin, what should workers and employers do when faced with an act of workplace violence? To start, in extreme cases of threats or violence, the experts advise contacting law enforcement. But but really, both Britt and Poberski and, and some other sources out there say that the hope is that this can be avoided. Again, it's it's there if you should need it in extreme cases, but but the hope is is that you're not going to. And certainly that's the goal of emergency preparedness and de-escalation training that experts encourage employers to offer. By educating the workforce on safe ways to respond in these situations, or ideally before them, as we've discussed, that can be a valuable resource in the event that prevention programs are unsuccessful and an act of workplace violence occurs. Britt emphasizes the importance simply of speaking up. He says that really is the crux of his training sessions. So should a, a coworker be acting differently to the point where you feel threatened or that something clearly is not right? And again, backtracking to what we discussed about, oh, wow, he or she's acting this way. That's never happened before. In those cases, the first step is to consult your human resources department. Again, as Britt notes, HR has the training and they know what to do legally speaking. And if it should be needed, they also can reach the organization's legal team Again, if you need that avenue along the path to moving forward with a given scenario. Sticking with communication, it's also key on the so-called front lines, um, especially for the managers and supervisors who may be more likely to be presented with these scenarios as they're happening. And certainly, and this doesn't just apply to workplace violence, but each situation and each person are different. 
but with that, there are some uniform strategies that experts find to be helpful. And they all seem to really dovetail with principles that really are related both to body language and to spoken language. So some, some key points to remember here. First is to maintain neutral eye contact when you're dealing with someone who's in the midst of a hostile or threatening behavior or situation. You want to avoid crossing your arms, avoid pointing your fingers, and also just in general refrain from any other body language that might be perceived as hostile. Transitioning from that when you're speaking with someone, use positive language. Speak calmly. And I know we've talked a little bit about empathy here and in other related segments with kind of the, the soft skills or, or personal relations. But in addition to speaking calmly, just show some empathy and, and ask the question from the perspective of the person who made the threat. And that those are things that can maybe help with, with de-escalation. And, uh, you know, again, an offshoot of that, ask the hostile person to sit down and, and write what is upsetting them as you're kind of concluding this, this encounter. And um, again, you're maybe thinking, oh, wow, that's easier said than done, but ideally as you're using some of these above tactics that can really help calm the situation, they can help that hostile person to, to feel less tense. As we conclude the, the discussion, both, uh, both the experts and other outlets cited research that shows that workplaces who install training and prevention programs for workplace violence or just in general de-escalation um, those workplaces that, that have those in place and also have established disciplinary processes, they're often less likely to contend with acts of workplace violence. When we're talking about things like that, those characteristics really are, are often related to just commitment from management and worker involvement and just the, the give and take there. So having, having those in place both in this realm and, and elsewhere, those also can be effective tools to help with workplace violence prevention. Again, having that commitment from management and the engagement and the communication from workers, just speaking up, sharing what you see, what you know, what, what might be concerning. Um, in closing, just another quote from Lev Proberski. He says, if your employees aren't engaged, you're not engaging them. They're not going to tell you the issues that come up and you're not going to solve them before it's too late. So again, we're talking about prevention here. So keeping an eye on those things, ideally before they happen, but also being ready that if something should develop or, or get through those prevention tactics. But again, always being mindful to, to see something and, and say something. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for all of your work on this story. If you want to read more about this or other news from around the safety world, please check out the May issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So, what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org. As the temperatures rise in the coming months across the country, it's the perfect time for workers and employers to talk about the risks of heat stress. Outdoor workers, along with those in hot indoor environments, should be aware of the dangers and be as prepared as possible for the conditions of the day. Joining us to talk about the risks that workers face is David Hornung, the coordinator of the Heat and Agriculture Program at Cal OSHA. 
And David, we thank you for joining us on The Safe Side. Thank you for having me. David, where we want to start with you is, I was wondering if you could just kind of explain what triggers heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and other types of heat illness. Yeah, the basics is working hard in the heat. When it's hot outside and you're doing a lot of work, you'll uh, get get overheated. But it's important to think of, of, of heat illness not as sort of this distinct classic heat exhaustion and heat stroke, heat cramps, but to think of heat illness as this continuum. So you can, you know, really quickly, you can start with something like heat cramps and that can move up into heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And while there are some clinical definitions like heat stroke is supposed to occur when the body temperature is uh, 104 degrees, uh, I like to think of it again as this continuum where, where the disease sort of progresses from something uh, maybe minor, such as heavy sweating to, to something more serious. And it can progress pretty quickly. So workers really need to be aware of those different signs and symptoms and, and uh, be alert for them. Well, you, you served it right up, David. Um, to, to that effect, how can, can someone tell that a worker may be experiencing a heat illness? Observation is, is the key, right? You want, to be, you want to have eyes on your fellow worker to see if they're getting sick, to see if they're acting strange. I mean, some of the classic symptoms of heat illness, heavy sweating, uh, muscle cramps, weakness, headache, nausea, uh, dizziness. And then you get into some of the more severe types of symptoms such as vomiting, uh, loss of consciousness, disorientation. And our regulation uh, in California here, 3395, recognizes this. And it actually requires employers to train their workers on the different types of heat illness, the common signs and symptoms of heat illnesses, and then the appropriate first aid and the emergency response to those different types of heat illnesses. So the goal is you want workers to be able to, to notice it in their coworkers or supervisor notice it in their employees and be able to respond appropriately. So what are some of the common risk factors for heat illness? Yeah, so we've, we've been seeing here in California a lot of workers getting sick from a lack of acclimatization. So this, this happens sort of in two places. One, we've got the new worker that gets sick, where it's their first day or second day on the job. And then we also have workers that get sick when they are working in a new area or a new environment. For instance, here in California, you might have a worker in the Bay Area that goes uh, out and starts working in the Central Valley for a day. You also have heat waves that come in. So Last year, you know, around this time in California, we had these sort of two heat waves, one at the very beginning of April, so around this time of year, and one in September, which gives you a pretty long season where people can get heat illness. Uh, a year ago, it was about 100 in LA and also uh, about 100 up in, in Santa Rosa in wine country. So we got this really early heat wave. And if people aren't used to working in the heat, their bodies aren't uh, adapted yet be able to handle that heat. And you're way more likely to get a heat illness during that time because uh, you aren't sweating properly. Uh, the, the electrolytes are going to be uh, depleting much more rapidly. And so it takes about four to 14 days for your body to adapt to working in the heat. 
One other thing I wanted to note is you had this issue of people being out of work or sick and then coming back to work and working in the heat. And we had a, a fatality actually back in 2020. If you recall early 2020, and I won't talk about COVID too much during this talk, but you remember in early COVID, everything shut down. And we had this fatality where uh, a group of roofers came back to work after being off uh, from COVID. And uh, one of the workers died on uh, you know, his first week back, back at work. He, uh, you know, came back and was working really, really on a hot day on top of a roof and uh, got overheated and, and, and subsequently died. So it's important uh, when people are coming back to work to make sure that they uh, are closely observed for any signs and symptoms of heat illness. And then if you do observe signs and symptoms, you actually have to do something about it. Way too often, employers are not taking these signs and symptoms seriously. And as a result, people are, are getting seriously injured and hospitalized and in some cases dying. And David, that's a good entry into our next question. What advice would you give employers to help protect workers from extreme heat exposure? And is that guidance different for indoor and outdoor settings? Yeah, so first, you, you want to make sure you have a good program in place. So all employers should put together a heat illness prevention plan. And that plan would go over some of the basics, like how you're going to provide water to your workers, how you're going to make sure that the workers have access to shade. But then some of the more complex issues, like what do you do if a worker gets sick? And that's really going to depend on the type of work you're doing. So it's going to be much different, for instance, a landscape company that goes around from location to location uh, versus a fixed establishment. If you're a fixed establishment, it's a great idea to uh, know where the hospital is, know who to call and when to call in the case of an emergency. And the last thing is you want to make sure that your workers are really well trained so that, again, as I mentioned previously, they know the signs and symptoms of heat illness and they know how to respond to those heat illnesses. The, the regulation here in California actually doesn't require annual training for the workers, but we certainly think it's a best practice. Our regulation requires that training be effective, and to be effective, uh, I really recommend that all employers provide heat illness prevention training at the beginning uh, of the summer and beginning of those uh, hot months to make sure that workers know what the protections are, are for them, um, know how they can get access to water and shade, and know what emergency procedures are. I do want to point out that Calusha recently, I mean, this is like last week, I think March 31st, we just put out the notice of proposed rulemaking on heat illness prevention in indoor places of employment. Uh, this is really exciting. It's been many years in the works, uh, and it just started the 45-day public comment period. Uh, so if this, uh, if this airs in May, then I think that public comment period uh, may still be open for a little bit, and anybody that's interested in it can read the proposed regulation and provide comment on it. Uh, this, we've, we've had a draft regulation of our indoor heat illness prevention uh, regulation up for on our website for over four years. It actually published, uh, it got put up there in 2019. And there have been some changes, but it's sort of largely unchanged, this uh, indoor rulemaking process. And what I like about it is the regulation is uh, very similar to our outdoor heat illness prevention regulation. Uh, 
it, it, it actually follows very closely. So instead of shade, which our outdoor regulation has for indoors, it's a requirement for employer to have an area where employees can cool down. So this might be like an air conditioned break room. Uh, the water regulation, very similar. Employees need access to water. There is a slight difference for indoor, which is it requires engineering controls for uh, very hot environments. So if you're above 87 degrees, the regulation as written, so this is again uh, in the early rulemaking process, so it could change, but currently it says if it's above 87 degrees that the employer has to take steps to implement engineering controls to try to lower the temperatures below 87 degrees. I think this indoor heat regulation is going to be great for both employers and workers across the state. As part of the regulatory process, we have to figure out what the impact of each of our regulations are. And our, this is called the Standard Regulatory Impact Assessment, or SARIA. And what this shows is that once this regulation is implemented, there's going to be a huge cost savings uh, from increased employee productivity, uh, increased comfort, less turnover, uh, all sorts of wonderful things happen when you lower the temperature and make it more comfortable. And, and personally for me, uh, you know, I work inside my house here. It's uh, a very comfortable 70 degrees. It's sort of hard for me to imagine working in a workplace where it's 90, uh, 90 degrees or over 87 for long periods of time. And some of the workplaces that would be affected might be like, uh, you know, food processing, like a tomato processing facility, a bakery, foundries. We even see two, a number of uh, warehouses that are not air conditioned, like the Inland Empire here in California. Very large warehouses uh, that don't have air conditioning. These uh, very hot temperatures make those environments really hot for workers. And so what we're hoping to see is we're hoping to see, of course, uh, provision of water, access to cool down areas when employees start to get sick. But the engineering controls, I think, is, again, if it goes through as proposed, I think is really going to have a big impact on having those areas actually be cooler for workers. I, I, I'm really excited for it. What should employers or fellow employees do when a worker is ill from the heat? First of all, employers should have a plan if somebody's getting sick. They should know what to do and they should think of it ahead of time. Um, and let me give sort of two separate uh, examples. Um, about two years ago, we had some workers um, that were up in uh, Fresno State. They had a big water tower. And this is the Central Valley, so it's super flat. They've got this big water tower up in the middle of campus. And they do an annual cleaning of that water tower and they did it in the middle of the summer so you've got these workers that uh climb this really long tower and uh they actually are going to be diving so they aren't like wearing shorts or wearing sort of heavier heavier stuff and an employee started to get sick from from heat illness while up on top of this tower and they had really no plan of what to do uh, when this worker got sick of lowering the worker getting the worker they called 911 and the fire truck actually came and there's this great video of them trying to get the, the, the sick employee down. And this fire truck has extended its, its ladder the entire way and it does not reach the top uh, of the water tower. And so they're actually, uh, you know, the, there's a video of them lowering uh, the, 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 
unconscious body down and into the, uh, the fire basket. And so it's important for employers to have plans, you know, for these unusual situations of, of what they're going to do and how they're going to uh, take care of, of the worker that gets sick. One other example, which I, I think is useful thinking about heat, is that workers can get sick for a number of reasons. Here in California, we have certain triggers in our regulation that say when the employer needs to reach out to emergency medical services or implement their emergency response procedures. And there was this case, in it was actually a 2017 case, and um, a woman was picking grapes. It was uh, 90 plus degree weather, and she started to become disoriented and confused. And she was acting really strangely. She actually was uh, working, I think her uh, father-in-law was actually the foreman, so she's working with her relatives and she starts telling uh, her sisters that are there that, that her children were in the vineyard, which they were not. And the employer was really delayed on doing anything to this, uh, for this em employee's disorientation. And it ended up by the time they called uh, 911 or got emergency medical services, this employee passed away. And it ends up that this, uh, this employee was not suffering from a heat illness, but rather uh, autoimmune encephalitis, so so not a heat-related illness. But what our regulation says is that when someone starts having these signs and symptoms, that the employer needs to take immediate action. And, and so we have all these triggers like disorientation, loss of consciousness, vomiting that require employers to implement their emergency response procedures. Uh, and it's really important that you do it quickly. Whether it ends up being a heat illness or some other serious illness, you know, you don't want to dither. You don't want to. You don't want to drive them to the clinic. Uh, you know, first, and then the clinic goes. Well, we can't deal with this person that's having serious medical condition, and they call the ambulance or they drive them to the fire department, and the fire department says, you know, hey, we need to get this to the person to the hospital, or or they drive them to the hospital, and the hospital says, like, you know, we weren't prepared for this, we weren't ready for this. That whole time too. If you're driving a person around, they aren't getting any medical care. They aren't getting, you know, cool IVs of fluids. They aren't getting extreme uh, cooling being performed on them. So I really can't emphasize enough that employers have to be prepared uh, for emergencies and then to, then to take the right steps when an emergency occurs to, to make sure that that worker has the right care. David, we thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us on this topic today. We appreciate you being our guest this month on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's about that time in this month's episode to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. And I will get things started with a story I wrote for Safety and Health Magazine about a new bill introduced in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate called the Nurse Staffing Standards for Hospital Patient Safety and Quality Care Act. Now, this was reintroduced by the sponsors of the bill, uh, Representative Jan Schakowsky from Illinois and Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio. And basically what the bill would do is it would mandate nurse staffing levels at hospitals in an effort to create better working conditions. And specifically, what the two bill sponsors said is, is this would protect nurses, drive better patient care and lower health care costs, 
by setting minimum nurse to patient staffing requirements. Uh, now, the bill will also require studies of best practices for nurse staffing and providing whistleblower protections for nurses who advocate for the safety of their patients. And this one hits close to home for me. My wife is a nurse and my mother is a retired nurse. So I am uh, very well aware of some of the stresses that are on nurses uh, these days and, and throughout the, the past couple decades. Um, Kevin, what did you learn this month? Well, thank you, Barry. Um, what I learned this month pertains to the world of sanitation worker safety. And it was a recent release from SWANA, the Solid Waste Association of North America. And upon using fatality data from industry sources and also media reports, um, stated that in 2022, at least 46 sanitation workers in the U.S. and Canada died from on-the-job injuries. And that marks a 64.3% increase from 2021. You mentioned about how nursing is very close to home uh, to you and it isn't so much for me, but I, I will say that um, it is in one sense in that my, my home office is right in the front of our home and we're on a cul-de-sac and each day on trash collection day, it just seems like a very seamless, easy transfer. And it's often before anyone on the cul-de-sac is getting up and getting going that, that the workers are starting their rounds. But then you recall your commutes or any other time you might be driving through a neighborhood and just seeing that obviously there's a lot of hustle and bustle. And I remember a few years ago, we had written a safety and health story on this topic. And if memory serves, the, the headline was a pull quote that was, quote, it's dangerous to be a garbage man, unquote. And certainly these, these numbers bear that out. It's whether people are not slowing down or, or not yielding to trucks or just there's there's any any number of things. So just learning that these these fatalities are on the rise, but industry organizations and, and among them SWANA do offer safety tips for sanitation workers. And some of those are to, to wear PPE, especially high visibility vests and or outerwear, never to use cell phones when you're driving garbage trucks or at a disposal facility, and just to buckle up when you're, you're operating these vehicles. Alan, how about you? What did you learn? I learned that uh, Congress is once again trying to tackle the um, nationwide shortage of safe truck parking. Uh, you know, obviously a very important subject, and and it's it's really gone across the aisle. I mean, this is bipartisan legislation in both the House and Senate, and, and to me, in a divided Congress, this is the kind of bill that I mean could could possibly pass. Um, and, and a lack of safe parking areas um, ranked third on the American Transportation Research Institute's list of, of top trucking concerns, and that was released in October. So, again, I, I think this is something that, you know, hopefully you see some traction on um, and, and could pass uh, within a divided Congress. And it's, it's a subject that both sides of the aisle are, are kind of looking at. Well, thank you guys for sharing your lessons learned. Uh, now it's our listeners' turn. Is there something important that you learned this month? Share it with us via email at safehealth at nsc.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending some of it with us. If you'd like to share some feedback, please email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, and spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as Kevin's feature on workplace violence prevention and all of the latest news from around the safety world, 
Visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scenes who make this podcast go. Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Rominski, and Jennifer Yario. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side. Mm-hmm.